people have absolutely no confidence in Baltimore City Police. They violated their constitutional rights to be secure within their person and their property. It's like the police don't have any respect for us, period. It's a lot of brothers and women, too, that's incarcerated for things they had nothing to do with. Not a panacea. Constitutional policing just means treat everyone equally. Welcome to Truth and Reconciliation, a podcast that recounts the troubled history of law enforcement in Baltimore and the search for solutions to heal from it. A forum for providing a voice for people who have suffered at the hands of law enforcement and to inform and empower others through their experiences. And a show ultimately about holding power accountable through stories, thoughts, and discussion. A podcast about what ails us and sustains us too as we try to cure the violence that plagues the city. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And I'm Sean Yost, and we're your hosts. The facts that we were putting together may not be the way that the police investigation um, by BT- BPD w- wanted to go. Today, we continue our discussion of the impact of the indictment of six Baltimore police officers after the death of Freddie Gray in police custody. It's a four-part series we're calling The Mosby Effect. The idea is to consider the charges not as a failure, but the first step on a long and torturous road to real reform. And to take a critical look at what went on behind the scenes at the trial, which may have had a larger impact on the outcome than mainstream media coverage would lead you to believe. All that coming up on Truth and Reconciliation. Shortly after Freddie Gray died, the city erupted. Protest turned volatile, and the city was on edge. The frustration over aggressive policing that had been building for decades finally boiled over. They have your people, they have your people barricaded like caged animals. They are surveilling us for no reason, for protesting for someone dying, and they're treating us like animals. So tell me if you were surprised by the uprising. I don't think anyone who'd covered policing over the past two decades was surprised by what happened. I think for a lot of us who covered it, we were surprised that it took so long. I mean, if you think about the years of zero tolerance, the years of illegal arrest, the years of people getting shot in the back with no explanation, and really what I think the uprising was about uh, and why it happened was because no one was listening. And Mm -hmm. no one was listening. uh, And finally, when people started to, you know, protest and really speak up, uh, then they started listening. So I think it was really about people not having a voice. And then the announcement that changed everything. Recently elected state's attorney Marilyn Mosby announcing the indictment against the six officers in the death of Freddie Gray. The findings of our comprehensive, thorough, and independent investigation coupled with the medical examiner's determination that Mr. Gray's death was a homicide, which we received today, has led us to believe that we have probable cause to file criminal charges. And in that moment, the city was transformed. 
Baltimore Sun reporter Luke Broadwater recalls what happened. It seemed like a collective tension lifted for the entire city. Um, immediately, the streets erupted in jubilation. I mean, people were cheering. There were I- impromptu dance parties breaking out. Um, it, it, it transformed the city in a single moment. Um, and I, I don't remember a single press conference I've ever seen which changed so many people's um, moods and emotional states in an instant like that before. But the peace was short-lived, at least in the media. Soon, the police union attacked, and the narrative began to emerge that the charges were rushed to judgment. To continue this travesty is an insult to the taxpaying citizens of Baltimore who, at the end of the day, bear the full burden of the enormous cost of these trials that have no merit and continue to divide our city. But was that true? And while this debate was raging, the trial loomed. Jan Bledsoe, deputy state's attorney, was one of the lead prosecutors. For her, the charges were the inevitable result of an investigation. I think the pressure came when we started to realize that the facts that we were putting together may not be the way that the police investigation um, by BPD wanted to go. And so then we're dealing with an extra pressure. So it's hard enough just to investigate police officers, but when you start to feel that um, your theories and your facts are leading you in direction A, but yet the organization that you're working with to investigate is going in direction B. That's where I think the extra pressure comes from. But even for Bledsoe, an experienced attorney who had worked in the city's court system for years, the backlash was shocking. Although I have prosecuted police officers in the past, uh, I have been involved in a number of high-profile cases as a defense attorney. I don't think, personally, I was prepared for what happened uh, as a result of the investigation and as a result of of the charges. Um, I wasn't prepared to have death threats. I wasn't prepared uh, to be looking over my shoulder. Uh, I wasn't prepared to have police uh, request police to come to our neighborhood because we were afraid we were being followed. Um, So in that aspect, I wasn't prepared. Uh, But uh, in terms of trial prep or in terms of the trial, I I had no issues. I was very confident. Not only was, were we being, when I say we, the Baltimore City State's Attorney's Office would receive threats daily. Um, But because of my my relationship with my spouse, um, we were also being harassed uh, because of our relationship, um, because we are gay, um, and uh, who is your spouse? Jane Miller from WBAL. I think that it's like the different layers that I didn't anticipate. Um, I didn't anticipate the the visceral reaction and the threats to me, um, as well as threats to her, and then threats to our relationship and who we are. And most important, there were challenges behind the scenes that received little attention. 
obstacles that haunt Bledsoe and show just how powerful police are. And so, before the trial even began, information that may have been critical to the prosecution was destroyed. Now, there's really interesting that has not gotten any attention for whatever reason. You guys issued a warrant. What was the warrant that you issued? What was it for? So, as part of any criminal investigation that is a serious investigation, uh, if a cell phone was used um, in the process of the crime, and it has information that that you want to know about, um, we had we had gotten toll records already to see that on the personal cell phones of some of these officers, they were communicating during during the time of Freddie got into the wagon to, to the very end. And we wanted uh, search and seizure warrants for their cell phones, their personal cell phones. So we, uh, we got a, a judge who um, signed the search and seizure warrants and this was roughly uh, the end of April. Uh, we asked that they be served, and um, they they search warrants only have to be served within 15 days, and then they ex- what we call expire. Uh, these search warrants expired. So hmm. what happened? The, the police officer didn't serve them. You'd have to ask the department, the BPD. They expired, uh, which means they went undeliverable. So we were never able to get that information. What do you think you were missing? What do you think might have been on there? Do you, was it imp- well? What, let me ask you: Was it important to your case? I think, given what we found out um, through other investigative tools, that in fact there were text messages going back and forth, that it was important to our case, and it would have shed some light on the case. We asked University of Maryland law professor Doug Colbert how unusual it was for a search warrant to expire without being served. No, I mean, if a judge signs a warrant, there's a purpose for it. And I don't know what you're referring exactly, but uh, it would be unusual for a warrant to be signed and not served. So it's usually police follow a warrant if it's if it's signed. They, they usually, you know... Well, that's what they're supposed to do. That's their job is to make sure that witnesses are presented so the prosecution uh, can make its best argument to a judge or jury. All that remained behind the scenes. But in the community, the expectations that the officers would face punishment was low. Baltimore City resident Devin Stevenson was skeptical. Uh, man, I, I I knew they was gonna get off. I mean, you for one, you you already had them uh sit up there and offer the family some money. And on top of that, what cops you really ever see go to jail? Like they're not going to jail. Like, and if they do, it's gonna be a slap on the wrist, some probation. They ain't gonna see <laughs> jail. You know, they're gonna get a bail. It ain't gonna be high. It's not gonna be outrageous. And then when they go to court. They're going to find a way to justify in favor for them. The only thing they're going to receive is probably you probably get a couple cops that may cannot be a cop anymore. But other than that, they ain't going to do no jail time. And that didn't dim the pressure inside the courtroom at all. When I was walking through the square, I sort of chuckled to myself because I'd see all these news media and I think they have no idea who's walking through their crowd. Like we would walk together, um, and everybody was searching for facts, and yet we would just walk through there, and we'd be like, "This is kind of funny." 
When the trial of the first officer, William Porter, began, Bledsoe remembered the stakes were high. At Porter's trial, there was plenty of evidence. Officers admitted that they didn't seatbelt Gray as required. Video showed they'd hogtied, shackled, and placed him in the back of the van. I sat through almost all of the four trials. I, I may have missed a day here and there, but uh, I thought that the evidence against Officer Porter, the first officer who was tried, was ex- extremely strong. Um, and I think the jury in part agreed because they nearly convicted Officer Porter of two of the four charges. Porter even told investigators Gray had asked for medical attention. But Bledsoe got a sense that there would be problems when Judge Williams made an odd ruling on whether or not Gray's arrest was illegal. So I think, I think the effect of us bringing charges for an illegal arrest is important because, in fact, part of the consent order says is that there are unconstitutional practices going on in BPD. And I've always laughed at myself because in my closing argument uh, with one of the cases involving the illegal arrest, and, and Judge Williams said to me, you know, Ms. Bledsoe, what do you want? And um, I just turned to him and I said, I, I want the police to stop jacking people up. And I know how, like, wow. that doesn't sound right in a closing argument. And I was sort of like, oh, Probably that was not very polished or very nice to say. And the jury deliberated just a day and a half before they told the judge they were stuck and couldn't deliver a verdict. But then Judge Barry Williams did something very unusual for a criminal trial. In fact, it was almost unprecedented. Well, in retrospect, of course, and I was surprised at the time when the jury was dismissed after that second day because the evidence was such that I expected a jury to wrestle and to disagree and to need full discussion. Uh, And as it turned out, at least from the Sun's reporting, Uh, The jury was uh, 11 to 1 for conviction on one count, and I think uh, 9 to 3 or 10 to 2 for conviction on a second count. And, And the other two charges, they were also divided on a third charge, and a fourth one, they were very much in favor of an acquittal. I think we we expose, it's like peeling back a layer of an onion. Like, we have one layer exposed, and then the next layer, and the next layer, and you can't Expose unless you take a risk. And this was a huge risk. Um, We were confident in our facts, but very few uh, state's attorneys would ever have the courage and the confidence to bring charges against six police officers. Interestingly, although police prepared for another uprising, there was little, if any, protest after the mistrial. And in that absence was the essence, meaning that perhaps the indictment itself was enough a sign that someone was listening. Baltimore resident Devin Stevenson says the trials themselves, regardless of the outcome, did have an effect. I mean, because people for once thought that the system, quote unquote, was really going to do something and find some sense of justice. And while Judge Williams declared a mistrial, we later learned jurors were just one vote away for convicting him for misconduct. But that decision set off a sequence of events that perhaps could have led to an entirely different result if the judge had given the jury just a little more time. The remaining officers asked for bench trials, 
well aware that a jury had nearly convicted Porter. It affects the prosecution's case because they felt they had the best chance of conviction against Officer Porter since he's the one who gave full statements and that uh, testimony at trial was inconsistent with many of the prior statements he gave the two interrogating officers. So once you uh, decide that uh, you're going to change the order of prosecution, it throws the prosecution off of their overall strategy. That meant Judge Williams would have the final say on all the cases. And during those trials, things only became more treacherous for the prosecutors. There was strange and conflicting testimony from the officers that received little attention. And rulings which seemed unusual and constrained the prosecutors. For instance, there was a a problem in court where we were charged with a discovery violation when, in fact, the defense had the document We didn't have the document. And I asked the defense attorney, do do you have that document? And he said, yes, I do. And I was like, where did you get it? Because obviously the police didn't give it to us, but they must have, by inference, provided it to you. And, you know, Judge Williams allowed me to put that on the record, but then still found out, found that we had had committed a discovery violation. Well, how can we commit a discovery violation when the defense has a document that the state doesn't have and was never provided uh, to, was never right. provided by the department. But none of that mattered, not to the media who covered it or even the activists. I think the uh, initial jury verdict set matters in motion where the defense realized we really can't trust the people of Baltimore to render a decision. Let's see how the judge does. and. I've written about this before, Sean. It's it's almost a foolproof strategy uh, to have a judge decide a case. And that's not to reflect badly or poorly on uh, the Baltimore City judge. I think he did the best he could and, and reached the decision that he felt was warranted. Um, but it has been a tried-and-true strategy that when you're tried by a judge, I don't know of a single case where a judge has convicted a police officer. So one by one, the verdicts were rendered, not guilty for Officer Nero. Not guilty for Lieutenant Brian Rice. And not guilty for the driver, Cesar Goodson. And then the remaining charges against Alicia White, Miller, and William Porter were all dropped. I I think at that point, after having three straight acquittals uh, for three different officers, uh, two of whom I felt the evidence was strong enough uh, to reach uh, a different conclusion, I I think it was clear that uh, the outcome was not going to be any different for the two remaining judges. And I think Ms. Mosey conceded that fact in her statement uh, to the community. It was a bitter ending, and the narrative was the prosecution was a failure. But was it? Was Mosby's decision to charge and the lack of convictions somehow fatally flawed? Perhaps. But what happened next raises fundamental doubts about that assumption. Today, the Department of Justice announces the outcome of our investigation and issues a 163-page report detailing our findings. We conclude that there is reasonable cause to believe that BPD engages in a pattern or practice 
of conduct that violates the Constitution and federal anti-discrimination law. All calling into question the way the case and Mosby's decision has been portrayed. Which is what we will examine and more on the next episode of Truth and Reconciliation as we continue to explore the Mosby effect. Thanks for joining us on our four-part series, The Mosby Effect. We'd like to thank our guests, University of Law Professor Doug Colbert, Civil Rights Attorney Dwight Pettit, Baltimore Sun Reporter Luke Broadwater, Baltimore Resident Devin Stevenson, and Deputy Baltimore State's Attorney Jan Bledsoe. Truth and Reconciliation is produced by myself, Taya Graham, and Sean Yost for Ace Spectrum Production. Truth and Reconciliation is engineered by Sienna Greaves, and it is edited by Stephen Janis. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and contact us on Facebook and Twitter if you have a topic you want us to discuss. And thank you for joining us for Truth and Reconciliation. <laughs>